0: We are picking up in our series in Paul's letter to the Romans. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the first half of Romans chapter 6, and we saw that the apostle has moved from that very lengthy section of this letter, chapter 1 to the end of chapter 5, where he deals with justification by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone, how we are accepted as righteous, how God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us, um, not because of anything we've done, but merely because of the righteousness of Christ, and that God has dealt with the guilt of our sin and has given us a legal standing forever, as being righteous. And then the Apostle Paul, as the good pastor that he is wanting to be to this congregation, has taken up an anticipated objection. Well, Paul, if if you say at the very end of chapter 5 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, where, where that mass of sin that has come from Adam and that has been... Um, has been lived in by all of Adam's descendants, has been imputed to Christ, and where that sin abounded, his grace superabounded. Well, then the inevitable conclusion is we should just go on sinning as much as we can to make God's grace look really great. And Paul has dispelled that notion. And he has said, There in verses 1 through 14, don't you know that if you're united to Christ, you've died with him. You've died to sin's power. You've been buried with him. You've been raised with him. Now you're to reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's the great thesis of verses 1 through 14. We have died with Christ. We have been made alive to God with him. Um, Paul actually doesn't really call us to do anything. He's telling us things that are true. And he's wanting them to really sink down deep. And so what Paul does now here in our passage is he takes up a parallel argument. It's as if he, well, the kids today don't have cassette tapes. It's as if he rewound the cassette and started over with a very similar argument that he had In verses 1 through 14, and now picking up in verse 15, he says, What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, and it might be better translated, pattern of doctrine, to which you were, and a better word here is delivered, committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the natural limitations. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Well, toward the latter part of the 20th century, there was a there was a theological controversy that was fairly pronounced. It was um, uh, in the United Kingdom and it was here in the United States. It was largely in the western world and it 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 came to be denominated as the Lordship controversy on one side. you had a group of very vocal dispensational theologians who essentially said god 's grace is so great that that you can't out sin it and there is a there's a very real sense where that is true but god's grace is so great that you can't out sin it and so it, it doesn't matter what obedience you render because you could be saved and be a carnal christian and and yet maybe you need to come along to understand that jesus isn't just a savior but later on you'll learn what it means that he's your lord on the other side were some progressive dispensationalists. I know that might not matter to you at all. Those terms, but um, who who fought that? And and in doing that, they sort of fell in the opposite error, error of making a sort of legal view of sanctification. If if Christ is your savior, then then you need to be doing this and this and this and this and this. But but what they really missed was the central message of Romans 6, that it's because we're united to Christ, that he is both and always our Savior and our Lord, and when he sets us free from the guilt of sin, he also sets us free from the dominion of sin, but it's not because you are trying hard enough, it's because you're united to Jesus by faith. Now, that's Paul's great burden in this chapter. He is wanting to talk in detail about the believer's call by God to live a sanctified and holy life. But he doesn't just say, well, your sins are forgiven, now live a holy life. He goes straight to union with Christ. And he is essentially saying the reason why most of us don't live a more sanctified life is because we've forgotten the realities that are already true about us. By virtue of our union with Christ. Now, earlier in this chapter, he said, um, can we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Because we died with him. We've been raised with him. Now, now walk in the newness of life that he's raised you up to. That's happened to every believer. This isn't something that happens to a subset of Christians. It's not something that someone has meditated on enough, and so then it becomes true for them. There are a lot of people who will tell you that if you just pull back and let go and let God, and you just abide enough, that, that you're going you're gonna to enter into this, this, this almost sinless state, Um, That's another big theological error. Um, That's not true either. Paul's going to say, now, reckon yourself. Consider yourself to be dead to sin. Say to yourself, this is what I am. Now, this morning I said he is sort of rewinding the cassette tape, and he's going back, and he's answering a second question. You'll notice there in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound by no means? But here he's going to ask a very closely related question that has a little different nuance. Notice what he says. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now Paul asked that question because he probably knew in every congregation there's always that one person that's like, Ah, you said we're not under the law. And that means you're saying we can just go on sinning. It's Always that one guy. Don't be that guy. Always that one person. Paul knows that. Paul's anticipating that objection. And, and he's saying, listen, let me explain how all of this works. Notice back in verse 14. He, he summarized that first half of this chapter by saying, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Now, that is a very definitive truth. Paul is going to unpack the implications of that in this section, answering the question in verse 15. I want us to see three things this morning. Very simply, I want us to consider first the two masters. And then secondly, I want us to consider the two manners, manner of lives And then third, the two outcomes, the two masters, the two manner of lives, and the two outcomes. We'll notice there that Paul goes on to answer that question very clearly, by no means. And then he says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or... Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, that's sort of structuring everything in this passage. Paul's saying there, there are two masters, and everyone serves one of those two masters. By nature, we all only serve sin. The nicest, most respectable, most successful sinner in the world only serves sin. He or she may not look as rebellious as many of us were, They may not act out the depravity in their heart to the degree that many of us have, but they are just as in bondage to sin as every other man, woman, boy, and girl who descended from Adam. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 8, whoever commits sin, and he means ongoing, whoever, whoever practices it in the totality of their life is a slave to sin. But then Jesus said, if the Son sets you free... You are free indeed. You see, that's the great need everyone has. The great need everyone has is to be set free from the cruel taskmaster of sin and to be set free to another master. Now, in this passage, Paul's going to use that analogy. And it's not a perfect analogy. And I know in our day, we, we squeam and we, we, we wince when we hear things about slavery. Remember, Paul is writing this in a, a Greco-Roman context where slavery was the status quo, and he is using an illustration, though very imperfect, to help the people of God understand the realities of their spiritual lives. And he'll even say at one point in verse 19, notice this, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations or the weakness of your flesh. Um, he, He is essentially saying to them, There are these spiritual principles, and and in order for me to help you understand them, I'm going to use this analogy. And it's not perfect, but it's going to work. We are either slaves to sin and to its practices and to its domination and to its outcomes, or we are slaves to God, slaves to righteousness, and to the fruit of that. Um... Now, let me say this this morning. I've said this to you before. It is wildly unpopular for ministers to talk about sin. Um, I want to read this quote to you. Um, Machen, J. Gretchen Machen said, No man is interested in good news unless he has the consciousness of needing it. No man is interested in an offer of salvation unless he knows that there is something from which he needs to be saved. It is quite useless to ask a man to adopt the Christian view of the gospel unless he first has the Christian view of sin. This is so vital in our day. I remember about seven years ago, Piers Morgan, and maybe I've told you this, had Kirk Cameron on his show, and he was grilling him whether he thought homosexuality was sin. And and, and Kirk Cameron was dancing around the subject, but but being faithful. And and I just sat there and thought, I would have turned that table on Piers Morgan and said, Piers, since you believe in a concept of sin, tell me what it is. That's Paul. Paul wants us to understand the nature of sin. In fact, at the very end of this, he's going to give that great statement in verse 23: the wages of sin is death. He wants us to understand the nature of sin now our Westminster shorter catechism tells us what it is sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of god it's us violating any of the 10 commandments and by nature we violate all of them all the time and even in a state of grace we still find ourselves breaking god's law that's why we have a confession of sin it's why we have a reading of the law it's to remind us that We are still under the authority of the triune God. Now, that goes to that question Paul's answering, because Paul said, we're not under law, we're under grace. What does he mean by that? Well, what he doesn't mean is that we're free to just sin our heads off and not render obedience to God if we're redeemed. That is off the table. What what he does mean is that we are not under the moral law of God as a condemning and binding covenant of works. On Judgment Day, if you're in Christ, God is not going to judge us on the basis of our relationship to the Ten Commandments as a covenant of works. That is so liberating, because every single man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever walked the face of the earth that is outside of Christ and united to Adam will be judged by that basis. That will be the singular basis. You may hate that. You may say, everything in me revolts against it. It doesn't change reality. God has written that law in man's hearts. Back in chapter 1, he says, by nature, people practice the wicked things they know are deserving of death, and they encourage others to do it because it makes them feel better about their slavery to their sin. And yet, Paul's saying, just because you as a believer are no longer under the law doesn't mean that God doesn't have a place for that law in your life and his kingship over us. Now, Paul sort of picked, back up, on, picked up on this back in chapter 3, if you turn back quickly, and, and just notice verse 31 of Romans 3, having explained that we get righteousness in the gospel, not from the law, That it's not by our law keeping, it's by what Christ has done in his sinless life and atoning death. Paul then says in verse 31, do we overthrow the law by this faith? And he says there again, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, here Paul is going to explain what function And what relationship the Christian, one who's forgiven, one who's redeemed, one who has been set free from sin's power, what relationship we have to God as as those who have been brought into his kingdom and made his willing servants. Notice what he says in verse 17. I love this. Paul breaks into this thanksgiving. He says, But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. It's a much better translation. The pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, this is fascinating. In the middle of explaining that there are these two masters, sin and God, and that we either serve one or we've been set free to serve another. In the middle of that, Paul breaks out into this thanksgiving to God before these people for what the Lord has done for every true believer. And this is what he says. He doesn't say, thanks be to God that you learned a bunch of doctrine and that because you learned that doctrine, you've mastered it like the rabbis mastered their codes of ethics and conduct. This is very important. He actually doesn't say anything you did. He says, Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the, the pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. Don't miss the, the passive voice. To which you were delivered. Now, this is fascinating. Back in chapter 1, remember, it says God delivered the unrighteous up. That, that God give, gave them up to sexual immorality. Gave all of us ought by nature to our, our evil desires. And then in chapter 8, we're told that God delivered up his son for us to redeem us from what we lived in. And this is fascinating. Right in between that, there is one more God delivering up, and it is that God took us when we were slaves to sin, and he delivered us over to that pattern of doctrine by which we have now become obedient from the heart to God. What does he mean by that? Um, When he talks about that pattern of doctrine, he certainly has in mind the gospel that he is um, explicating. He certainly has the gospel in view. He certainly has all of... The, the Christian ethics that flow from that Gospel in view, one of the glorious things is that that what what God has done is He has given us over to receive that to deliver us through it and to plant us in it and and to sow. To so put it in us, all of that truth about the Lord Jesus that we love and that we've received, and all the truth of his word, to put it in us in such a way that it shapes us more and more into the image of Christ. I heard Sinclair Ferguson say this week, and I had never heard him say this. He said, I hate when people say to me, That was a great sermon. And when I hear people say, I'm going to preach a sermon, he said, ministers don't, if, if you're faithful, we're not preaching sermons, we're preaching God's word. Because God's word is what delivers us. God's word is what changes us. God's word is what cuts to the division of joint and marrow and and discerns the thoughts and intents of the hearts of God, pe- God's people. And it's God's word that, that sanctifies us. Remember, it was Jesus that said um, when he prayed, he, he prayed, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You see, it, it's not some mystical experience that God suddenly sets somebody who's enslaved to sin free just because of some mystical experience. It's, it's through the ministry of the truth about the Lord Jesus. And that means that before Paul says anything about us pursuing sanctified lives, he again reminds us of what God has done for us and those realities that are true of us, even And let me say this this morning, especially when you don't feel it. As a pastor, I have had so many people tell me, there's just so many times I don't feel forgiven. There's so many times I don't feel empowered. I don't feel the Holy Spirit in me. Listen, our feelings vacillate. We are never called to trust our feelings. Yes, we want to experience God's nearness. Yes, as we walk in humble obedience, we do oftentimes experience more of his presence. But but the truth doesn't change because we don't feel it. This is so vital to get. We press ourselves into it because it's true. Now, that also means that if we have been set free from sin and now we have been made uh, slaves of righteousness, that we live in the word of righteousness. That's, that's the standard. That's the pattern. That's, that's everything. My dad used to say to me when I was a young boy, he used to say, Nick, the evil one wants nothing more from us than to be out of God's word, to shut it and be done with it. There are so many people that think the Christian life is shut the Bible, get out, Do more. That's not what Christianity is. Paul says, you were delivered through that pattern of doctrine to which God graciously gave you over, and now we are a people, if we've been united to Christ, who want to do what's pleasing to God. Now, let me, let me say this this morning. Just because we are now slaves to righteousness and slaves to God and no longer slaves to sin doesn't mean we will never sin. This, this chapter has been horribly misused in church history. Um, in fact, in chapter 7, Paul will say, if you've been delivered, then you feel that irreconcilable warfare. John Owen, the great Puritan, said, one of the marks that you know you belong to Christ is that you feel that battle between your flesh and between the spirit." Uh, the Apostle James says that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. One of, the, one of the things, if we become slaves to God, then we hate sin. We hate it when we sin. We're grieved. We don't need even someone coming and saying, hey, man, you know, are you grieved over that? Because we're grieved every time we sin. Mostly we should be. And, and th- we go back to the Lord Jesus and we cry out for pardon and cleansing. And that's what it means in part to be in the kingdom of Christ. But Paul wants us to understand that there is, there is freedom from sin and freedom to obedience. You know, I think the Lord Jesus has this in view again in the Gospels when he said, You cannot serve two masters. Either, either you will love the one or hate the other. You'll be faithful to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, he just puts it right out there. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve worldly materialistic things. Um, I also think he has this idea of freedom and that transfer from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness when he says, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's the pattern of doctrine we've been delivered to. Take my yoke upon you. Be yoked to me as cattle were yoked and learn of me and stay here with me. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and Paul is essentially saying, look, this is a great promoter of sanctification, Remember that you don't serve the same master you served before you were in Christ. The whole of us. Um, now, I want us to consider not only the two masters, I want us to consider the two manners of lives. There were going to be two different ways of living, and Paul sets that out in great detail. Notice, notice verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free... In regard to righteousness, he's saying you never did what was pleasing to God. I've told you, in, in my unregenerate state, I remember feeling like all I can do is sin all the time. Because that was all I was doing. Again, you, you can have all the decorum in the world. You can have a great bank account. It's money and medicine are just band-aids. They just hide what's really there. I've seen it, I've seen it in ministry. Once the money and the medicine are gone, you see what the person is. Um, When we were slaves to sin, we were free. We never did what was right, ever. Even those good acts, as I said last week, were tainted with sin. Wrong motives, self-pleasing, self-righteousness, a desire to do good enough so God will accept me. That's all rebellion. It's all sin. In fact, it's some of the great rebellion in the Bible when people try to be accepted by doing good enough. You will never do good enough. And, and Paul's saying here, though, notice that there are these two manners of, of life. Notice he says in verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time? What, what spiritual fruit was there? It was, it was all bad fruit. Where Jesus gives us that illustration, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Every tree will be known by its fruit. What fruit did we have? And Paul says to them, to these believers, notice this, he, he says to them, He calls them the things of which you are now ashamed. The things of which you are now ashamed. I don't know if you had this experience after you were converted, if you've been converted. You felt this shame about all the wickedness that you lived in. You felt shame over the things you did, and that's good and right. Um, The Apostle Paul says that we're to expose evil and and that it's shameful to even talk about certain things. There, There is, we live in a society that wants to just cast off the restraints of sh- shame. We should look at wickedness and say, Th- that is a shame. There is shame to that. It is shameful to practice those things. And a true believer feels that. He or she feels that when we've sinned. We feel that. We know where that's resolved at the cross. We know that Christ has has taken the shame. He's despised the shame. He's paid for the guilt. He's broken the power. But Paul's saying, listen, let's think about the manner of lives. Um, and by the way, I have had multiple people come to me with multiple mistresses who finally got caught and there was zero shame over it. Because the unbeliever is not ashamed of what he or she does. Not ashamed. I was not ashamed of the evil I did before I was in Christ. Now I feel guilty about everything, all the time, because we are sinful. But notice what Paul says. There is a difference in manner of living. Notice this. He says, The end of those things is death, but now, verse 22, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, Paul is actually going to say in here that just as we presented our members, back up in the end of verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. What Paul is essentially saying is, With all the zeal and might with which we pursued sin in every shape and form, using every part of our faculty to indulge in everything that we wanted, whether it's lust, greed, anger, jealousy, envy, gossip, murderous hatred, whatever it was, and we pursued that with all of our being, so now that you've been set free, you should use all of your members as instruments of righteousness. That means the tongues that are a world of iniquity that we only use to tear down, to destroy, to curse God and men. James tells us that now if you're in Christ, um, those ought to be used in a way that is pleasing to God. He says, how is it that we can bless God with the same tongue as we curse men with? It doesn't fit. No, no stream has fresh and brackish water. We're to use our tongues. You remember I told you about Isaiah, the prophet, and when he is convicted of his sin and his great call before God and he sees Christ high and lifted up and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And the Lord purifies his tongue and says, Now go to the people. And, and this is a lifelong process for us. It doesn't mean, when I get it, I'm never going to sin. Notice what Paul says. He actually says, at the end of verse 19, that as we present our members as slaves to righteousness, it leads to sanctification, which is a process. Which means, as we pursue what is right, we find that we are growing in grace. And that's what it means to live under grace. Um... If I could just summarize this for you in the most basic way this morning, if you're a professing believer in Jesus Christ, then there should be a dominant desire internal to you, Paul says, from the heart, to obey the Lord. You're going to fail. You're going to falter. Many times. And yet that is a dominant desire That is a dominant characteristic of someone who is a true believer. I don't want to give in to the sin. Now, more than that, I want to do what is right with the whole of my life. Paul's saying not just compartmentalizing, but but we want to pursue what is right. And again, this is a lifelong process. Um, Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon says this so well. When we come from under the absolute power of sin, we come at once into a like subjection to righteousness. As we were governed and swayed by the love of sin, so we become in a similar manner subject to the forces of grace and truth. As sin took possession of us and controlled our acts, so grace claims us as its own, takes possession of us, and rules us, with an absolute sway, man passes from one master to another, but he is always in subjection. Now, here's the glorious thought. What Paul's saying is if you live under grace, grace is your, your, your ruler. Grace, grace demands more and more that we continue pursuing what is pleasing to God. Grace has already dealt with our sin in the judgment that Christ took, Grace was what made the pardon a reality, and the guilt was taken away in the death of Jesus. But now grace moves on to rule us and reign in our lives. And and even, and let me say this this morning, oftentimes when we don't want to obey, it prods us on to want to do those things that are pleasing to God. Now, the Lord has many ways of causing that grace to function in our life. If we are finding ourselves living in a particular sin and and not mortifying it, the Lord has a way of disciplining us. And, and when we don't listen to him, he continues to do that. That's a mark of his love. That's part of the way his grace functions in the life of a believer, the same way a father, the writer of Hebrews says, disciplines the children he loves. Um, but God's grace is always ruling over us. And that means we're not trying to legally just become better people morally. Paul is not saying, if you just try to be a moral person, everything's going to be great. He's saying, you now belong to another. Christ bought you with his precious blood. That's the truest thing about you. Paul says twice in his epistle to the Corinthians, you were bought with a price. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he owns us. When he died on the cross, he purchased the whole of you. That's an awesome thought. The blood of Jesus doesn't just forgive us and then leave us. He he bought us. He ransomed us. Forever we belong to the Lord Jesus. That's awesome. And think about this. The price that he paid to deliver you from bondage to Satan and sin, and to make you a slave of God and righteousness was the infinite value of the blood of the infinite Son of God incarnate. That's amazing. That's amazing. The infinite value of infinite God incarnate in Christ nailed to the tree, bought you, purchased you. Now, I don't know... I don't know a greater motivator for us to pursue what is right and pleasing to God than that. Paul is really positing all of that essentially in this chapter. He's given us the two masters. He's given us the two manner of lives. And very quickly, I want us to consider the two outcomes. Notice that he gives one of those outcomes at the end of verse 21, talking about what we did before We were in Christ, he says, the end of those things is death. Now, Paul doesn't say whether he's talking about just physical death or spiritual death or eternal death. I think he means all three. That the end of sin is death, that's the outcome. Um, I was reading someone this week that said there are many people that say, I want Jesus, I don't want Paul. Because Jesus is nicer than Paul. Oh, no, he's not. Jesus spoke about hell more than Paul. He spoke about it in more descriptive terms. He called it outer darkness. He called it the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. He spoke about it as unquenchable fire. That's Jesus. Paul simply says the end result of living a life to sin and in sin is is death. It's judgment. And Listen, just as we need to hear, and I need to hear, that we're sinners, we need to hear about the outcome of that. That's the inevitable result. Now, why? Notice what Paul says at the, end of verse, at the beginning of verse 23. He says, the wages of sin is death. The wages. He's, he's saying that's, that's what, in the same way an employer agrees to wages with an employee, And when the employee's done what he's done, he has merited the wages of what he's done. And he gets paid those wages. And essentially, Paul's saying what sin, what one sin deserves, not to mention the totality of a life of sin, not to mention Adam's imputed sin. All sin, by nature of what it is, the wages of it is death. It's what it deserves. That's, That's a merit system. Now, we are not living in a merit system under grace. And so there's an opposite and contrasting outcome. Notice this. Paul says, the wages of sin is death, verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, think about this. This is how great and gracious the living God is. He doesn't have to redeem anyone. He could have let all of us perish in our sin, and he could, have, he could have given us all that eternal consequence of our sin. God is so gracious that he doesn't redeem us and bring us back to the place where Adam was at ground zero and say, now, if you work and if you obey, you'll merit life. He doesn't do that. God meets eternal death with eternal life. Y'all don't miss this this morning. That's that's shockingly wondrous. God meets the just retribution for our sin, which is eternal death. And he comes and he says, now as a free gift in Christ, I'm going to give you eternal life forever. Um. You know, I love the Pilgrim's Progress and I love when Christian, as he sets out on his journey and he has those friends trying to keep him back from following Christ, going to the cross, and, and, um, and he just stops his ears and he runs with all his might toward the cross and he says, life, life, eternal life. What an awesome, illustrative picture. He stops his ears to what the world says, which is false and untrue, and all he cares about is life, life, eternal life. Now, Paul has held that out throughout this chapter. That's the reward of God's grace. It's the free gift. We don't merit it. Our sanctification doesn't merit it. But that outcome ought to motivate us in the little time we have left here, in our very short lives, to live as slaves of righteousness to obey from the heart the pattern of doctrine to which we were delivered by God. You know, I'm going to say this this morning as I close. Sin is so deceptive. Um, One old Puritan, Thomas Brooks, says, Satan loves to present the bait and hide the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. Um, Someone else recently pointed out to me another saying that's helpful that Sin never comes with a a, a price tag. It doesn't actually tell us the cost. Paul says the wages of sin is death. And that means that if you're in Christ, you should say, I belong to another. I was bought with a price. I can't serve two masters. I want to do what's pleasing to him. Lord, give me grace to do what's pleasing to you. And when you fail, you go back and you have a gracious master, you have a master who bled and died, who purchased you, who redeemed you, who bought your pardon, who forgives you every time you confess your sins, and who is faithful and just not only to forgive, but to cleanse us, to purify us, to conform us to his own gracious image. If you're not in Christ this morning, I just want to say to you, please take to heart these things, because you are, you are a slave to sin and only to sin, and that is a bad master to be enslaved to. The manner of life is shameful, and the outcome is everlasting death. But the free gift in Christ is everlasting life. It is a fruitful way of life, and it is a glorious master to serve. Is full of grace and truth. He is so patient with us even when we fall and fail. I hope that you'll go to him and trust in him. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would remind us of these truths, not just in our external hearing, but that you would make us to hear them with the spiritual ears that you give us Uh, by your Spirit at work in us, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, would you make us to hear that you have set us free from the dominion of sin, from the ways of sin, and from the outcomes of that sin? Lord, would you remind us this morning that we who are united to Christ have been delivered by your Word and by the truth of the Gospel to a better way of life, to a better enslavement, to and enslavement to righteousness. Would you help us to run the course of your commandments where we have lived, Lord, as if we have not been slaves to you? Would you have mercy on us? Would you manifest your grace again in our life? Would you remind us that we are ruled and that grace has dominion over us? And Would you make us to see the sweetness and the gentleness and the love and the compassion of that better master who has bought us with his precious blood, even the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.